Hello and welcome to the Niche Guarda YouTube podcast series powered and in partnership with our platforms openbusinesscouncil.org, citiesabc.com and fashionabc.org. We are here once again to talk and uh, I would say this, discuss and research about the biggest topics of humanity, but as well to talk about people and people that are doing things that make a difference. I think if you look at the noise of the news, uh, I think across the board in the last months, I think we have a problem with our media. It seems like the world is going to finish tomorrow. Uh, but there's a lot of great things happening. There's a lot of great technology being created. And I think you need to raise above or rise above the, the noise, above the, the criticism about the negativity and look at the fantastic things that are happening. And, and I think that's what we're trying to do here in this podcast. I think I'm obliging myself to focus completely on the positive and the case studies that change humanity, but as well, the technology. And this is a business and technology podcast. And our focus is precisely to highlight how the fourth industrial revolution, how digital transformation technologies, how the blockchain, metaverse, and AI can actually make a big difference. And that's why I bring to the, the table and to this series uh the people that are making this difference and leading these narratives so today i welcome to our series core excelstrom um, that is the concordium group cto and cpo and a fantastic personality that has a fantastic background as well in different areas of technology and very important building solid technology with some of the biggest corporations in the world Core holds a MS uh, Master in Science in Computer Science from the University of Aarhus, one of the leading universities in, in uh, Denmark, and joined Concordium from a hypergrowth American pre-IPO startup where he co-managed the, uh, the Core Infrastructure Group. And uh, before Concordium, Core was previously a manager at Uber Running, Core Storage Building, a highly scalable distributed ledger and storage solutions facility. Core started initially from Denmark and later moved to Toronto, Canada, where it doubled the site lead, bringing all of Uber's Toronto operations under the same roof. So, of course, a big brand that he actually was leading as well. He's a senior engineer leader with an extensive hands-on experience in building systems at scale. He has a proven track record on design and delivering large distributed systems, especially infrastructure technology in different uh, multi-heterogeneous environments across multi-cloud and uh, um, um, in the areas of engineering, software architecture, but as well, Core is as well a, a person that has been always looking at the academic and the research side, especially with the areas of mentorship and teaching, and uh, enjoys defining, implementing, and running large-scale IT systems. So I think just to finish early on his career, Core was a co-founder of the consulting company Silver Bullet, where he helped drive the digital transformation of the Danish public sector with a focus on PKI secured service to service communication. And the company designed and implemented the iOS and Android application Medicine Check for the Danish Medicine Agency, which is the national uh, medical service of Denmark. The app is free and allows citizens to read product guidelines for medicines, scan barcodes to get the product at end and a lot of different things related. Cor is as well a writer and a blogger and he has contributed to the Nordic Workshop on Programming Environment Research as a co-author for a case tool for calm development and also for the Uber Engineering blog on our Uber Engineering evaluated uh, coding and compression algorithms. So, and now of course he's leading a big blockchain uh, 
technology platform that I think uh, we discussed already with the co-founder, but I would like to highlight for this series. So welcome to our series, Car. Thank you so much, Dennis. Happy to be here. So um, an impressive CV. And I want to start with the basis uh, of your career. So from Denmark to Canada and the world. So a bit of uh, how does it start that passion for engines and machines and engineering? And as well, how did you went uh, through your trajectory? <laughs> well, it, it, it dates back to, to the 80s, actually. I, uh, I'm one of the fortunate who had a Commodore 64 when I was a kid. And um, and prior to that, my my uh, mom and dad are uh, school teachers, and um, you know I got the opportunity to actually borrow a computer from the school over a weekend, and I was just completely sold. Instead of of playing games on it, I started looking at the code already uh, on on day one, pretty much, and and just trying to change stuff and see what happened. Um, and then from then on, I just constantly nagged them uh, on on borrowing that computer until eventually I ended up getting that Commodore sixty four. You know that that just that was my that was my childhood, right? Commodore sixty four, Commodore Amiga, then into PC, and I think I spent the better part of, of of uh, you know the time that other kids actually uh, run around and play football, uh, basically hacking along on these machines, uh, coding assembly C, uh, and all kinds of um, of demos and games and and whatnot uh, on those machines. So that's how it all started. And then eventually I decided, hey, maybe I should just uh, study computer science because it seems like a logical next step. I also enjoy writing, as you said. So I was actually a little bit torn whether I should pursue a career in writing. But I think um, I think I made the right choice, first of all, because uh, you know this this space is so interesting and so many things are happening, and you can actually you know add writing on top of that. So it's it's not like I I disregard that. So yeah, and so after that, you know, um, I was I was working a few years as um, as a software engineer at, uh, at, at just basically a telemarketing company where I, I, I started out as a manager actually initially, um, but a, a coding manager. So I had a small team of eight people working for me. And that was a learning experience at 28 to step into that role, be part of a, a leadership group. And I really enjoyed that. Then moving to the, to the States, working in Silicon Valley for three years during the dot-com bubble uh, and bust and 9-11. Those were hard years in many ways for for the Silicon Valley. Uh, th there were so many companies failing, um, and um, sure enough, I, I worked my way through three of them at that time because of the same reasons. So yeah, and then came home as you mentioned. Uh, worked ten years in my my own company, built that up, and helped digitize the Danish sector. And then I think um, when I look at at that, right, that was prior to joining joining Uber. What always fascinated me about uh, computer science is is really you know the 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 blend between the real and the virtual and that's what you get when you start digitizing stuff and then the first wave of digitization of course when i when i was a when i was 16 i got the opportunity to write a piece of software that would uh, that would help the local um uh, airstrip basically handled flights that came in and, and left again and they had to do a little bit of tracking and reporting to to the national uh, um, uh, air agency in Denmark and you know I was fascinated by the by by what that was but what I did actually was I just basically took whatever forms they had and I, and I emulated those on the computer right and that's just the basics but but that's not really where it gets, it gets interesting it gets and because that just that's just efficiency where it gets really interesting is when you when you see the uh, the emergence of new things things that that weren't possible before because you blend um, tech with with the real world for instance, the invention of the smartphone enabled Uber to rise, right? So back in 2009 is when, when Uber 
started and and Apple launched iPhone one in two thousand and eight. So prior to that time, it wouldn't really have been been practical or possible even to to launch Uber. There were cell phones before, but they weren't really smart, right? So the fact that you now have one gadget with all of these sensors and connectivity and a nice screen and everything on it was enough uh, for that technology to become practical and emerge. And all of a sudden now you can find yourself anywhere in, in large cities. You just click a button, you get a ride and you go somewhere, which is magical. The first time I, I remember experiencing that was when I was interviewing at Uber in 2014. And standing there in San Francisco and, and pressing that button, seeing the car pull up, just get in, go somewhere. That was that was pretty magical. So, so you know, that 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 enables something that wasn't there before, namely empowering people who just have a car to make a living off of it without having a taxi license. And of course, that also created a lot of, of noise and and um, and has been uh, one of the controversies around the globe that Uber has been involved in. But then moving on from Uber, I went to, uh, you call it a, a stealth mode startup. I think that's what's on my resume. Um, because it's a stealth mode startup, it's I worked for Cloud Kitchens, which is uh, Travis Kalanick's new startup, and uh, and the th that's the same thing. This company blends, uh, you know, building kitchens that you rent out just like in a WeWork setting, and then they wrap the whole thing in technology. And the kitchens are only made for takeaway. But again, the same fascination, right? It's the mixture mixture of what you can do with with the real world, and then. When you start doing stuff uh, where you bring in technology, you can improve on a lot of things. And uh, I can't say much about it because I'm on the NDA, but but um, I'll just say that 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 this company does the same as Uber did. They're basically pushing the limits, right? And at Uber, for instance, you know um, they will they will they will feed in events in a given city and say, hey, you know, uh, tomorrow there's going to be a, a soccer match. It's going to be up here, and when people exit the stadium, we know for a fact that there will be a, a rise in demand on on cars. So we might as well take advantage of that. And then, you know, 30 minutes before, we'll start sending text messages out to drivers who are on their couch and ask them to get off the couch, get in the car by telling them basically that, you know, in 30 minutes, prices are likely to go higher in this area. So if you want to make an extra buck, you can go up there and help pick up these customers from the soccer match. That kind of thing is hard to compete against if you're a taxi company, right? And, and that's really where technology can go in and improve your business and enable new ways of 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 competing and, and working and yeah so it's not just a magical experience of being picked up it's also the ability to to push the boundaries of what's possible on the business side i think that's 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 my fascination and and now i'm in a in a blockchain company um which is also extremely fascinating a super fascinating space where you also see the same thing right i, I think i'm as a person, I've never been fascinated by cryptocurrencies per se. I think it's interesting that that you can have a currency that, that transcends nationalities and, and and national interests. That's super interesting because that that creates new things. But um, the whole space has been turned into this whole investment thing, and I think that's not that's not really where it should go. Right? Where it should go is is really about um, how, how blockchain can help businesses improve. Um, by making more money or saving money, and how it can, how blockchain can um, become an enabling technology for people to do, you know, business and 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 uh, interact with each other in new ways that weren't possible before. That's really that's really what interests me, and and that's also what we are aiming at uh, in Concordium. We're more like a a blue collar blockchain, if you will. We are we are for the masses, but we are we are also aiming uh, to become a blockchain that more traditional companies will feel safe working with, if that makes sense.
That is more important than ever. So, so before we go to Concordia, I want to touch two things. So let's look at uh, the first question is, how did you look, um, the other day coding and engineering is all about architecture, systems, and how you put that together. Which writing it has about, even if you are creative writing, you still have to have a process, you still have to have some kind of things. And I know code is right now, there's a lot of new areas of coding. So how do you see this evolution of coding, writing, and engineering? Because in the end, coding is almost like the new language of humanity, but as well now there's the no-code language. There's a lot of tendencies on that. And as a, a, a researcher, you have been touching all of this. So I would like to touch that because it's more technical, but for people listening to us, it's super important as well because we have to demystify these things in order to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so when you build software, uh... The, the, the there are like several sides of it, right? There's uh, from if we take Concordium as example, it's it's a blockchain. It's a it's a piece of software that's based off uh, scientific research in a in a pretty complex area. I mean, cryptography is not for everyone. Uh, it's definitely something that that uh, requires a certain amount of understanding to understand the theory underneath here. At the same time, you want to create a product that the masses can can use. You want to make it as easy as possible for other developers to come in and express themselves and build the applications that they need to be able to build and and basically lower the bar there to, to ideally a sort of a no-code situation where they don't even have to code, but where people with, with logical skills, but maybe no coding skills or very little, uh, are able to actually ex express um, you know business rules or or something that that um, that can get that can that can turn into a, a piece of program that people can use. So so when you design such a piece of, such a system and and you design uh, a system that has to be um, um, a platform for us to build on, um, you have to make sure that you build something that's robust and secure and uh, evolvable, there's like a lot of non-functional criteria that you look at, right? So you, you want to be sure that, first of all, that the code you produce is of a high quality. Um, you want to, so that's really basic, right? You, when, whenever we hire someone, um, we go through, we always uh, set up a sort of coaching uh, situation where the, the new hires learn about how we do here in our company. And it was the same thing at Uber, Cloud Kitchens, and, and other companies I worked with. You have this whole idea about what are the, what is the way we express ourselves here? Because just like in in when you speak um, Danish or English or, or any other language, um, there is different ways of expressing yourself. If you read one author and another author in the same language, there will be different ways that these authors are, are, are talking about. Some will have like a very floral language and others will have super simple language. Um, and, and it could even be the same story told in many ways, right? The same thing is true for coding. So you will have uh, coding standards that, that you use. Those will be implemented in the tooling that people are using. So there will be these types of pieces of software called linting that basically checks, are you following the, the structure that we usually use here? And the, the importance of this is when you, when you put a piece of code into a large code base that multiple engineers are contributing to, you want it to be easy for some other engineer to pull it off the shelves and edit it. That means the, the lower the bar is for that engineer to actually understand the code, the better, right? And if you have your own exotic style of writing something, then that other engineer will be like scratching their head and it's like, oh, I wonder what this thing is actually doing, right? And now you have to sprinkle it with lots of explanations all over the place in order to do that. So coding standards are extremely important. You mentioned architecture. Um, architecting something is really about setting up the structure and this is something that typically senior engineers uh, will be doing, right? And um, and again, the architecture of a piece of software 
the importance of that cannot be stressed enough. If if you create a brittle architecture, then uh, there are a number of non-functional aspects that you will not be getting. Like for instance, you might miss out on being able to evolve your, your software. Typically you build something and then tomorrow requirements change a little bit. And then you want it to be as easy as possible to tweak the existing software and, and make it, um, um, and turn it into that the new requirements that that you had, right? So you you're thinking about how you can separate concerns, for instance, within uh, when you're building a system. Typically, the data layer is separated from the business logic layer, is separated from the user experience layer, and you might have multiple UI layers. And then uh, you can also be thinking about how you segregate the network layout from all of this, right? And 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 um, and that way you you create very uh, well-defined interfaces between sections of of your program uh, and within those interfaces you have strict rules about how you communicate between the different layers or the different areas of your code and if you follow those then it becomes easier for you to uh, to evolve your your, your software so I'm, I'm like multitudes of, of different paradigms have emerged over the years uh, typically object-oriented programs one of them and then component-based uh, Software development, uh, as you mentioned, I wrote an article about that uh, many years ago. How you could componentize things. Microservices has emerged as a relatively more recent way of structuring uh, uh, code. Um, web services is, is another way of thinking about it, where you think about the web as a medium of communication, and you can expose these discrete functions that then systems can call over the internet to get a service, ex you know, uh, executed, um, and then. Uh, Get some information back or, or deliver some information. So it's all about these these way of structuring information in a logical way with clear interfaces that really talks about how do I connect to this thing, because that gives you the ability to evolve the implementation on the backside, right? So think of it a little bit of a good analogy. I think is is a socket, um, an electrical socket. Typically, you have a piece of uh, electrical cord that you can you can put into the socket. But um, I mean, if I take my uh, my Danish sockets and then I go to Britain and I try to put it in there, it won't actually work because they have different socket types over there. So that the interface is not compatible, right? So you want to be sure that the interface is compatible, and then you can always change the wire. You can change whatever is behind it, and that's the magical of 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 the um, electrical socket system that you can actually plug in any electrical device as long as it adheres to a few standards about how many volts it takes and amps and and that it has like um, these plugs, right? The same thing goes for building software, right? The way you want to be sure that you have a well-defined interface and it gives you the ability to evolve on the on the backside. So, so uh, there's a lot of things to uh, to building software that that's important. And, and I mean, these are just a few things you want to think about. Scalability, also, how do you build a scalable solution? And this is one of the things that companies like Uber are extremely interested in because. Um, First of all, I mean, if you have a business that that uh, that grew like Uber's did from from 2012, I think, and and, and up until at least 2020, the, the company had a um, it, it was a hypergrowth company, literally, uh, where you know, uh, the thing from 2014 to 15, we uh, um, we grew by 600% in terms of the number of trips that were taken or something like that. Then it becomes extremely important when you have like a hypergrowth company that uh, you have a strategy for for scaling out your storage. Uh, one thing that's interesting, for instance, is when you have a growth like that, uh, the you might think that it, it's a good idea to take the data that you're not using that much and put it on some cheaper storage. Sure enough, you can do that. But if you have a 600x or six, oh, sorry, 600% growth, 
Um, then yes, uh, last year's data is just a small fraction of this year's data, right? And, and, and that way it doesn't really make much sense. You, you might be better off focusing on how you can compress what you already have and and um, and how you can scale out and, and add more storage uh, as, as you go along in a horizontal kind of fashion. So you can just add more to it. And designing something like that is not trivial actually, uh, designing horizontally scalable uh, systems. And this was one of the challenges that um, the team I was working with at Uber took up and we actually built a horizontally scalable NoSQL database from scratch, which is today uh, still the biggest uh, data store at Uber and it has petabytes of data across multiple data centers. It's, it's a super interesting uh, application and, um, and and an architecture as well built for scale, right? But that's just one of the layers and, and, and at top, top of that, you have your whole business layer of components that make up the actual system. And, and there again, you wanna be sure that that also scales out horizontally. And and today, you know, there are open source tooling uh, around that you can download. Kubernetes, for instance, is a is a great such example, which um, um, which I used in a different capacity. But at Uber, we were building our own, so we were building basically um, this uh, uh, this system that where you you know, if you were running out of of compute power, automatically the system would detect that and just spin up a new process that would then help take the load, right? And then you that way you can. You could simply scale horizontally and just add more and more uh, machines in an automated fashion, which is again uh, a critical right. So, so having the ability to, to spin up multiple machines, having redundancy is also an important factor. Making sure that you have multiple copies of your data because if they if you lose a machine, for instance, a, a machine with uh, interesting data on it, and you're not able to recover the data, well, then that's not a good situation, right? So you want to be sure you keep the same discrete data item in multiple locations. Now, is it enough to keep it on one machine? No, what if the hard disk drives or dies? Okay, so maybe you put it on multiple drives on the, on the same machine, still not good enough if, if, the, uh, if the power goes to, um, to, 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 you know, to that machine. You can put then multiple machines on a rack and, and put the discrete data item in multiple machines on the same rack, but then the power of the rack can, can go out, right? And then you put in multiple um, redundant power systems on the rack. And sure enough, that's that's fine until the, the power of the entire area goes down and the data center goes down. And then, you know, it, it just goes from there. So we actually put up multiple data centers, replicated the discrete data items onto multiple uh, machines in multiple racks on in different data centers. That way, you know, if you lose the lose a data center, you still have every single important piece of data. It's an important strategy. It's also an expensive strategy. But it's, it's by and large the same strategy we're taking in blockchain, right? Where every single piece of information is replicated across all machines. Um, and that gives you the power also um, of, of blockchain. So like, if you think about building, you know, systems that scale, systems that are um, resilient to um, outages and all these kind of things, then redundancy, um, the ability to, uh, to, to, um, uh, to scale horizontally uh, is, is super important. But then, of course, there's other aspects as well, like performance, there is security. There's like all these non-functional aspects that you want to build into your system uh, when you design. And that's where the architects come in, right? These are people who know um, what are the main things I need to concern myself about, separation of concerns between the layers, the, the horizontal scalability in all the important layers, redundancy in all the right places, security built in, um, and then security in depth, maybe, where, where you don't just have security in, at the door, right? It's just like saying, hey, I have this house. 
I'm just going to you know, protect my front door and then um, I think that's good enough. But then when someone kicks in the front door, then you you don't have any more defenses. Defense in depth is where you, you do like they did in, in the olden days where you had these castles with multiple walls around. And then the first wall was breached. You still had another wall you could retreat to and then another wall you could retreat behind. Um, until you were in the final chamber, right? And then, then all, all was, was lost. So there's also these strategies uh, in terms of security that you need to think about. How much is is good enough? Uh, because security and performance typically also are uh, opposed forces. So the more security typically, uh, typically either performance or user experience will suffer, right? Um, I mean, the most secure system is probably, you know, a... Uh, a completely sealed uh, metal box dropped at the bottom of the ocean or something like that. Um, but it's not very user-friendly. It's really hard to get the content out, right? So, I mean, that that, that, that really... So so oftentimes architecture is a matter of trade-offs, I think is, is, is important to understand. So what you want to know is also when you design a system, what are the trade-offs you are architecting for, right? What are the things that you really... What are the uh, um, capabilities of the system you're designing that you want to pull out? and that you want to to make sure um, emerge. That was a lot of, of, of random talking about architecture and, and software development, but I think by and large, right, uh, design it well, architect it well, make sure your code quality is up to snuff, use, um, you, use your peers to make sure that you groom uh, your new engineers, but also make automated systems, uh, put that, those in place to test and check that the code is, is, is done. Make sure you build a good test suite. That you've automated testing. That you test all layers before you deploy it, and make sure that that you have uh, integration tests that tests not just small discrete items, but test across. Right. So that I think I can talk at length about um, all of these items if if you're interested. No, no, this is very interesting, and and I think it's really important to look. And I like the way you think 360 because I think one of the biggest challenges with software is that. Everyone has an opinion, but very few people do the work you do. And what you do in here is that go through the details and understand how things work. And that's actually where the business goes. So let's look at Uber for a while, because before we go to Concord, we have a lot of questions on blockchain. So Uber is, is by far a massive success. And I think from a software perspective, I think people look more from the data perspective or whatever. I am a huge fan of you, Uber myself, because in the end of the day, just looking before Uber and now is that the fact that I can get a car coming to me in one minute or two or five, it's a massive branch. And not just that, the, the transparency that comes to the industry is massive um, because if effectively in, in a lot of countries is a nightmare, um, most of them. So so there was a lot of, and I know that Uber was very aggressive from a business development, but let's look from a software perspective, which is your area. So Uber really picked a simple app and made it a super app. And now it's not just about cars, it's, it's about everything. You can Uber everything. Even the keyword Uberization of society is there. So from a from a, a software and perspective of engineering, what do you think were the success that made Uber what it is now? Because, of course, uh, it's very easy to criticize, but build something that works as good as Uber, whatever you like it or not, whatever you have geopolitical or some kind of uh, principles of being against or, or that's a massive achievement in terms of technology. So let's look at that part because that's a big important thing people forget most of the time. An invisible work before that. Yes, and it's a, it's a, it's an extremely good question actually because I think uh, lots of lots of companies actually fail because they don't get this right. Um, um, so any piece of software being written these days has to have some kind of uh, reason of being. And uh, Uber is no different, right? From 
the idea behind Uber is uh, supposedly emerged when uh, when Travis Kalanick and one of his friends were in Paris uh, on New Year's Eve, and they weren't able to get a um, a taxi. They they were like trying to get to a party or something, and they weren't able to get anything. And so the idea about how about you just had this like black cap you could just call and then it would just take you to from party to party whenever you needed to. Um, that would be a, that would be amazing, except, especially if you could call it by way of your cell phone. Right? So that that was the idea. And so the idea emerged that hey, about clicking a button, getting right where you are, going from A to B. If we can bring that to life uh, and and uh, and make that thing happen, then. It, it is a much better experience than trying to get a, a taxi and hailing them on the street and they'll just drive past you because they already have a passenger and you don't know when they're coming if you call them and et cetera. Maybe you can't even call the number because it's overloaded. So so having a very, very strong idea about the business that that you are in and being very certain about where you're headed with that is critical for success in my mind. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is now you need to build it and execute, and that's where the software portion comes in. So how do you go about that? Um, as an engineer, you can go about this in two ways, right? You could decide uh, that, hey, um, we're probably going to be building a world-class system that will have to scale across the globe. It'll have to be installed in multiple data centers, and we should probably architect that from day one. Wrong. You should not do that. Because if you do that, then you will be stuck in designing your system and uh, your competition might be outpacing you before you even have your product launched, right? So what you do instead is you build a minimal viable prototype initially that addresses one or two key use cases that, that actually makes this work, right? So like the click a button and you can see the car coming, you get in the car and the driver starts the trip, you go from A to B and then um, driver makes money, and you are uh, you lose uh, some money from your account on, for from for the, for the trip. That's really the base use case, and um, and you know getting that right uh, was what Uber did in the beginning. The first version was um, supposedly built by um, by a number of engineers, I think, in Mexico, uh, somewhere in South America, and when uh, by an external consulting company that Travis hired. And when 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 the code came back, it was full of uh, of comments in Spanish. And and the first engineer was a uh, he was from Canada actually. And uh, and when he started looking at the code, he was like, oh, I don't I don't know Spanish, not good. What do I do? And he actually he started translating from Spanish to English in order to just decipher what on earth was going on in the system, right? So that he could start um, uh, working on it. And I think so. That's another lesson. Don't. <laughs> make sure that that you use a common language uh, just like i talked about before right the maintainability of the code of course is super important and this this first version probably uh wasn't that so he he rewrote it and and, and rewrote it as a more simple and simplified application the first uh, version that could do just what they needed to do right small cell phone app small uh back end and and then get it up and running and then you iterate from there and you constantly bring value to your uh, to your system, constantly looking for what's the next thing that will bring value to me while you take the hit from time to time. Because if you move very fast and you build software, you know, you will always get into a situation where you accumulate what we call technical debt. Right? And technical debt is not great, um, but it's, it's impossible to avoid. Technical debt is when someone asks you to, to build that feature and launch it by tomorrow and you decide just to wire together even though we know it's not going to be pretty and it's going to be hard to maintain then you just do it because it will work right 
Um, but you know that you'll have to take the hit further down the line and you'll have to rebuild this portion and otherwise you'll never be able to build the next layer on top of it and you'll never be able to scale. So um, Uber had a, a, a very good and healthy balance in between pushing out new features, iterating on the product from the business side, taking the hit on the technical depth uh, from time to time and re-architecting the most critical pieces when you needed it. And, and then as the success started growing right, and the company started ex you know, expanding like crazy, uh, then that's, that, that poses new sets of challenges because uh, building at hyper growth is completely different from building in sort of a stable environment. For instance, if you have a stable environment where you, you always have the same revenue year over year, you, know, you have the same amount of traffic on your website, well, your system will never need to scale out horizontally in the, in the number of processes, right? I mean, you may have to take peak traffic from time to time, but you know what your top peak is and that's it. But from something like Uber, where you just constantly double your traffic, uh, you know, uh, every three months or, or, or something like that. Well, then there's always some portion of the system that starts um, catching fire. And, and you can see that it, it's getting red hot and now it catches fire, right? And then what do you do? So, for instance, when I joined in, in 2014 in April, uh, Uber had uh, had a single database system at the time that would take all of the right traffic. It was a Postgres database, and that uh, that database, uh, simply every single trip that was ever taken across the globe, ended up in that that one database. Now, um, the trips were also being read by multiple systems internally at Uber in order to process payments and and do other things. So you needed you needed other processes to be able to read the data that was written, right? And um, uh, Postgres has this ability to have uh, sort of a um, replica set up where you can set up these read replicas that would then get the data from, from the one database where all data ended up, the writable host. And Uber had 12 of those when I joined. So there were 12 readable uh, replica databases set up around this one writable instance. But because uh, you had to have one place where you wrote the data, it was not possible to set up multiple uh, you know, writable hosts, right? So the reads were scaling fine and that uh, you could add even more read hosts if you wanted to, but the writes, the writes weren't scaling. And this one machine, they have simply, what they had done is they had they had bought the biggest machine they could get their hands on. So it had, uh, I think, 24 CPUs and uh, a whole lot of memory. And it was basically a massive machine. So it had been scaled vertically, right? So the one machine had been scaled, but it wasn't able to scale horizontally. And that wasn't really possible to get a bigger machine. There were also some other problems with uh, with with the host that that limited uh, the ability to scale up further. So something had to be done. And there were two camps. One camp said, "Hey, we should continue to be on Postgres, or maybe move to another SQL database like MySQL, and we should just set up a master-master replication setup, which is where you have two writable hosts that try to agree on what was the latest record, and sometimes there can be conflicts and and other nasty things. So not necessarily the best way." To do stuff and the other uh, camp said no 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 uh, let's forget about this let's build a very simplistic database that can scale out horizontally where you can just add machines as you go right and then you will never run out of space because now you have this situation where you just scale horizontally and and the cto was a brave man uh, he he took a bet on the ladder which literally meant rewriting the whole uh, data layer and writing a new database and that's what we did in Denmark in um, in the uh, storage team in Denmark that I was part of. So we basically wrote a horizontally scalable NoSQL database from scratch using MySQL as storage nodes underneath, but the sharding layer on top was was uh, something we built ourselves. 
And then in six months, we built a thing and we put it into production, um, uh, which was uh, which was just in time for Halloween, actually. And and then you know Uber Uber had uh, or Uber has I guess in the U.S. a number of holidays that that are interesting like the Halloween for instance is is a is a party uh, day there and and we could see that that was getting it was getting critical uh, to to uh, to be able to actually take the number of trips that were were coming over Halloween and we were worried that Uber would fall over simply because of the load of the trips that would come out of of Halloween and that was the precursor to New Year's Eve which is even bigger. So if we weren't able to help handle Halloween, we knew for sure we wouldn't be able to have, handle um, Halloween New Year's Eve. But um, but because of the we architected things in the right way, and I won't go into the details of how we did that. But um, because we did that, because we had a strong way of, of of working together with the US, because we made very clear distinctions on what was the interface between the actual business logic and the underlying database, we were able to pull this off. And and that actually. Uh, I think two weeks before Halloween, I was in the United States, and we decided to 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 um, to basically swap the old database system out with the new. Um, one of the tricks we did was we we wrote to both databases at the same time, and then we set up validations between the data systems to see that both databases wrote the same thing and and could read the same data. And we simply switch uh, flipped the switch one day, um, and um, and then nothing happened other than the system continued uh, to operate. And and literally the load on the systems just dropped, and and flatlined, so that that when we went over Halloween, it wasn't even visible on the databases, and uh, and that was the beginning of that success. But then of course you know we had we had moved so fast that all the tooling around the database wasn't where it's supposed to be. We had a lot of technical depth, and we started building tooling around it and started adding to that and automating and building you know automated scalability features into the system. And today this system hosts all of the uh, the. Um, most of the data and on at Uber and the management system that we built on top has become a management platform for all of the storage technologies at Uber, both in data infra and in in the storage team. So it's evolved to become quite uh, large systems that that actually do self-healing and auto scaling at a massive scale. So it's a super interesting story that, that there's a lot of learnings from what what Uber has done there. But you know, back to your your original question, it's really a matter of iterating and constantly delivering value and constantly looking at how much technical depth that you're accumulating and then taking the hit when it's when you can, right? And and try to pay it off. That's impressive. I, I think it's really for people listening to us, I know that not everyone is so technical, but this is actually explains the complexity of doing this because of course, with a mistake, it could take the entire system down. And of course, a mistake like this can cost millions of dollars or, millions of dollars, or sometimes billions, which was, for instance, was the case of, when the U.S. government tried to launch the the Obama Care app and it crashed, so these things happen, okay. <laughs> but I think a lot of the work is done behind the scenes by people like you and uh, and as well. There's a lot of uh, trial and error, especially for the scale of what you did with Uber, which is one of the biggest apps in the planet. So so let's right now go to blockchain and Concordium. So. How did you come out uh, to blockchain? And now you see the technology of blockchain. Let's forget all the crypto. Let's look at the blockchain technology because I know there's so much myth. Everyone has an opinion. And at the moment, uh, the opinions are not very positive, especially in November, as of yeah. November 2020. But things change very fast. So I would like to hear how do you see this, this, the technology and blockchain, especially from an engineer perspective and from the evolution of the technology. Okay, so um, so I joined uh, Concordium in uh, March of this year. So I've only been there for like nine months at this time, and uh, and prior to to my joining Concordium, as as uh, as you know, I I weren't in crypto. Um, I have experience building like these 
highly scalable infrastructure uh, systems in sort of a private setting, right? Because it was Uber's own data centers um, and the cloud. And um, I also have experience with uh, building actually, uh, we built a ledger storage on top of the uh, NoSQL database I mentioned. So I also have experience with building ledger stores, um, but again, not a blockchain. And and from my previous um, capacity as uh, where I have my own company, I also built PKI systems. So I've always been interested in sort of the security, the crypto, um, but never actually went into to blockchain um, until now. And uh, well, it was really by way of my network. Um, so my my CEO, Lona, reached out uh, and and said that by way of the network, my name had come up and that um, she was interested in exploring whether I, would, I wanted to be um, the new CTO for Concordium. And so I spoke to her and I spoke to uh, Lars Sire, the, uh, the founder of Concordium, and um, and basically discussed this for a while. And then, you know, at the end, I just decided this this is too interesting. I have to try this. Uh, and um, and uh, it, you know, uh, it un unfortunately, it coincided with the crypto winter that we are now in. But you know, in in all of these situations, it's also an opportunity. So um, I'm not I'm not too worried about the space long term. I'm more like it's um, it is what it is, right? And um, if if you build something that that isn't good enough or it's built on on thin air, when maybe eventually it, it won't work. So um, you were asking about the the technology itself and and what I I think about what's interesting about the technology itself, but I think um, so. If you look at blockchain technology, it's it's really uh, a ledger technology where where you you can you can write records. Uh, these records uh, are immutable, so once written, um, in theory they can never be uh, deleted or tampered with because uh, because of the strong cryptography that's that's built into the blockchain and because all of the the records are tied together. Um, and um, and then uh, you know they're timestamps, so they are also ordered in sequence. And um, it, it's a distributed system, meaning that uh, a blockchain is really composed of a number of machines that all keep a copy of everything. So it's extremely redundant. It, it it's more redundant than the the horizontally scalable NoSQL database we built at Uber. In that database, we only had three discrete copies per uh, per cluster, but then we would replicate the the whole cluster to other uh, data uh, or to other data centers. Um, but here, you actually have a copy of every single piece of data on all machines, right? So heavily redundant, um, and which is also the secret because the the heavy redundancy is what protects the data from being tampered with in the end. Um, and and that's also why when you have a, a blockchain, the more nodes that help secure it, uh, the more safe it is in reality. Um, so, and I think here here we need to talk about two things. There's like the, the public blockchains, and then there's the private blockchains. And and to to my best, right, at least the way I think about it is that I think the public blockchains are the is the real invention here, right? I mean, ledger technology has been around for a long time and. And sure enough, you can spin it up in your own data center if you want to, and you can say, hey, I'm, I'm keeping everything on a ledger. If you want to see, you can see my ledger. But do I really trust you with that ledger? Right? That's really at the, the, the core of all of this. Do I trust that you don't roll a backup on your ledger or that you haven't built in a backdoor somewhere so you can tamper with a record? And, and can we really use that as sort of the place where we write our business transactions? How, do, how, would, I, how would I trust you? Right? And that's where the public blockchains come in and, and, and say, hey, but you know, you don't need to trust me. You can just inspect for yourself. We'll just put it on, on machines that are out there. And if you want to, you can download the, the source code yourself. You can download a binary. You can download the source code, compile it yourself, run it on your own machine. You get a copy of all the data that was ever written since uh, day one. And whenever we write a transaction, you and I, um, 
when I transfer something to you or we uh, we execute an application where you know we I, I, I lend you some money and uh, and you borrow them from me. It's all visible on the blockchain because we we wrote the smart contract that's also on the chain, so no one can tamper with the code because the code is also on the chain. And here is the source code, and you can read it, and you can compile it, and and etc. Right. So that whole thing about putting putting your records out there, putting the code out there for inspection, making the whole thing transparent. That's what creates the trust. And the trust of being able to communicate between people and businesses and systems in a way where you don't have to, to use a third party that you need to somehow engage in this conversation, right? So you can take away the middleman. And that, of course, creates some interesting new emerging business opportunities like uh, DeFi, for instance, right? Where you can, I can, uh, I can borrow money from you without having a bank as an intermediary that says, yes, Dinis has now deposited the money in this bank account. And I will now vouch for you, Core, getting the money, et cetera. So you actually go away from all of that and you use the blockchain as that intermediary. Um, so so if you if you think about the, the blockchain technology, right, it's it's uh, slow, first of all. Right? I mean, uh, Concordium takes 400 TPS, which is, is quite fast, actually, uh, compared to Bitcoin um, and, uh, and Ethereum. But it's still not very fast compared to uh, to the likes of uh, Visa and and these other systems that write millions of transactions per second. Um, it's expensive. Um, we are quite cheap. I mean, we cost one euro cent per transaction. Others have like fluctuating prices. Like Ethereum, for instance, also has fluctuating prices. So if if there's a lot of load, prices go up. Um, but it's still not it's still not free. Um, and then it's it's slow to write and it's it's expensive. It's um, um, it's distributed, but um, but what it can do for you is it can provide this transparency. So what you can do with it is you cannot write all of your data, right? You would never put all of Uber's trip data, for instance, on a on a blockchain. That makes no sense, uh, simply because there are exabytes of data, and uh, and a blockchain would need to replicate all of those exabytes of data to all of the machines out there, and that would basically just blow up the blockchain really quickly. So what can you do with it? Well, it, it becomes sort of an add-on on top of what we already have. You have the internet, you have the mobile phones, you have all of these emerging technologies, and now we have blockchains on top of it, right? And these blockchains give you the ability to, to write information between uh, systems that cannot be tampered with, where you can come afterwards and, and prove that uh, this happened. So for instance, if you buy a boat from me, um, you know, you can put the money in in, uh, in escrow on the blockchain in a smart contract. I can put the deed uh, in an escrow. And when the blockchain detects that both of them are there, the, the smart contract says, oh, these two conditions are now fulfilled. It will swap the money. So the money be goes to my account and the deed goes to yours, right? And that way, uh, you know, I, you you uh, you get to a point where where it, it can create something that, that wasn't there before, right? This emerging thing. And, and maybe you don't even want to put the deed, exact deed there. What you want to do is maybe you put the fingerprint of the deed, um, which is in the form of a hash code, because that doesn't take up very much space. And that way it's it's easier and faster to write and read and uh, and therefore more suitable for blockchain. So, um, so, you know, I think we'll find that the blockchain is very suitable for many use cases that have to do with me proving to someone I don't trust or where parties don't necessarily trust each other uh, directly uh, that something happened or that this transaction took place. Um, so it, it creates trust in a trustless world in many ways is what I think is the most important uh, aspect and uh, of blockchain um, and, and in particular public blockchains, not so much the private ones. So let's look right now in 
what you're trying to solve with the Concordium blockchain. Because you guys, like you said, are more a blue chip um, blockchain that it was created with a, with a token, CCD, and, and really there's a fantastic team. I think I, if I look at, like you said, Lars is a, a, someone that created a multi-billion dollars investment bank and actually one of the biggest platforms of trading in the planet and that worked for 20 years or something more. And as well, Lonan, the CEO, is vice chairman of, of uh, uh, Volvo Cars and as well uh, involved as well in, in IKEA. So I don't need to say more. So the team is not a conventional blockchain ICO, let's put it that way. We're talking about... Uh, um, uh, I profile personalities and so forth. So just if you could synthesize what you are targeting in terms of uh, um, the blockchain solutions and how you aim to take forth. Uh, yeah, so Concordium has one one ingredient uh, that uh, stands out from uh, from all the other blockchains out there, other than we're backed by science and based on science, you heard all about that before. Uh, we have uh, ID built into the core blockchain layer, and we also have self-sovereign ID built into our wallets. So with Concordium, you are now able to not only have this bubble of trust, where this trusted platform where you can you can interact uh, and, and create trust in a trusted world, you can also now prove your identity, which creates another layer of trust on top of, of, um, of the other one that you have. So this enables you to selectively reveal something about yourself, that you are from Europe, uh, what is your first name, that you are a certain age, etc. And then going into the new year, uh, we will also enable other times, types of claims. So, you know, you could put your credit history and then you can prove that you actually have this credit history. So if you could get your experience credit history on the blockchain um, as a claim that was issued to you, you would in a self-sovereign fashion be able to prove to me that you have good credit history, for instance, right? Um, or you could prove your, uh, uh, you know, your university diploma to me and, 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 and tell me with certainty that you have a certain degree. And that's actually, uh, and I can trace that back to the university that you were working uh, or you were studying at. And then that way I can, you know, get the trust. So it's like a trust pyramid that, that you're getting. In. And that's what we, we are working with in, uh, in Concordium. Um, and, uh, and 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 playing uh, you know playing into that whole trust space and trying to 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 tighten the trust around communication between businesses people and systems, um, while at the same time providing a solid blockchain proof of stake as I mentioned before uh, uh, that uh, that is eco friendly and and doesn't uh, you know uh, eat up a lot of energy and can be run on very small machines and uh, and that way it becomes a it's like a, a light footprint kind of uh, trust system that you can use to build these business applications where you can you can start doing business with other people without bringing in intermediaries because you can use the blockchain as the medium of trust. Well, fantastic. I, I know that I have a lot of questions here on this. I think we it's the second interview with the Concordia, but I think this is a much more technical one. I know that you have to leave, so I appreciate. There's a lot of uh, intelligence here. We're going to put notes about some of the things, especially what you guys are doing in terms of the ID and research. And of course, uh, you can find more uh, on the Concordium Major Digital Presence. So you're going to put all of that. So, Car, I want to thank you for your time and for the great inception and the detail that you went through. This is very important. And I think for people listening to us, please do your homework more than just go and try to get a quick back. Do your homework because there's much more money in the long term than short term. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Cor, for your fantastic insights. Thank you for having me, Denise. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure.